Well, good morning, uh, Rooted. My name is Alex. I am uh, one of the elders here this morning. Um, and I just want to say, uh, over the past couple weeks, before I get my sermon started, that I'm just really thankful for our young uh, church plant, um, that we've had some COVID-19 obstacles. Um, and thankfully, we've had many of you step up into various roles and responsibilities. Um, and I just wanted to extend my gratitude. Um, I would go over names and responsibilities and tasks and describe those things in detail, but I know that I would probably leave someone or something out. So I, I didn't want to do that. But I just wanted just to extend my gratitude and to know that for those of you who are serving, know that uh, I see you, Rodney sees you, but most of all, God sees you serving his bride uh, in the way that he needs uh, to see glory for himself. Uh, so we're incredibly thankful for you um, and I'm thankful for our church. So as we kind of dive into chapter four, I wanted to quickly kind of give a very quick kind of 40,000 foot view of what have we learned so far through the book of Revelation? Like, where are we right now? In chapter one, we learned, ladies and gentlemen, what was. In verses, in chapter one, like verses five through eight, we learned of what God has accomplished through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And now in chapter two and three, we learned what is. It was the affirmation and rebuke of the seven churches in Asia. The assessment of Christian lives by God himself. And so letters written to individual churches related to their beliefs and their values and the influences of the world are kind of what chapters two and three were about. And I'm not sure about you, but as we read through chapters two and three of Revelation, as we heard preaching on those two chapters of Revelation, I couldn't help but be convicted, wondering and looking at how the church present was still struggling, and, that, and even the church at present is struggling with the things that the church of the past was struggling with as well. And that were challenged by God's word and, and kind rebuke related to our behaviors and our attitudes and even our influences. And as we continue to understand that God designed the church to be much more than sometimes, sometimes what we experience, that those of, there are those of us in this room who desire much more from the church than what we are gaining from it, and then the good news is that I'll tell you that God also wants more from the church on a daily basis. And he doesn't just want more from the church, but he commands more from the church. If I were to remind you what Rodney preached on last week, which conveniently is on the screen right now, but um, Revelation chapter 3, 19 through 21 says this, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. After giving a strong rebuke to the church of Laodicea for being lukewarm, Jesus simply asked them to open the door. He is asking you to do the same thing. Because we of all people, as Christians, should, be, should know and understand what God is capable of accomplishing through the midst of whatever means that we have, whether we're a small church plant or whether we are uh, across the street from a large church, God can accomplish the same things. And so God is challenging our status quo through the book of Revelation. Through chapters two and three, we learned about God's perception of the church in Asia. And I'll admit that throughout this sermon series, I've often wondered, what does God think of Rooted Church? What things in our church need to be affirmed? What things within our church need to be rebuked? So how is God challenging our status quo? How does he continue to do that? He does that through chapter four. And we learn what will come. God hearkens us back to the same type of themes that we saw in chapter one as he's describing the heavenly realms to shake us out of our normalcy and our, our urban and just standard ordinary Christianity. 
And he paints a picture that is beyond our own selves, beyond our own perception related to how we are reminded to worship him and how it should affect our daily lives and our behaviors. So if you're to open up the hood of Revelation and look at how the book is laid out, functionally or mechanically, you'll find that chapter 4 now shifts from a text that was pretty cut and dry. Chapters 2 and 3 was affirmation and rebuke about the churches in Asia. And we transition now to a vision from John. And it's important to understand that we're transported into the author's mind and his recollection of a spiritual experience. If you look at chapter 4, verse 2, it says, At once I was in the Spirit. And so before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of the sermon and this text, I'll ask you, what comes to your mind when you hear a phrase like that? At once I was in the Spirit. How does that make you feel? And do you believe that you worship the same God that John was experiencing and interacting with? Do you know that that same Holy Spirit, that if you're a Christian this morning, resides in you? We would probably feel a lot more comfortable if we were reading 15 more chapters like chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapters that were cut and dry, affirmation, rebuke, assessment, encouragement. But that's not the God that we serve. We serve a God that is beyond us. We serve a God that is beyond our imagination, beyond our own perception. And so we need to embrace scripture passages like this. Now, I know that it's challenging when we can't see the scenario for ourselves. I don't know about you guys, but when you're trying to work with someone else and you can't see the problem, whether someone calls you on the phone and they have a mechanics problem, I know we have a lot of mechanics in the room that probably call it like, hey, my, my, I don't know what's going on with my car. And you're like, well, through a phone, it's probably hard to discern that. But those situations where, that can be challenging when we don't have that tangible experience, we have to take slowly and listen. We have to think methodically. And so that's what I'm asking of you from this point forward to the book of Revelation, that you broaden your perspective, that you ask God to bring you wisdom and insight related to the scripture that we're reading. Because sometimes we have to think slow, to read methodically, and ask, and ask God to bring us wisdom and insight. Because when we do that, he helps us understand who he is as our king, but also who we are as cherished children of God. So I'm going to break this passage up in a few different sections this morning. Uh, but before I do, I just kind of want to pray for the rest of our time. Heavenly Father, I come before you uh, with these people here, and I, just, I thank you for Rooted Church, that as we worship together, uh, Lord, that you are uh, the God sitting on the throne, and how apropos it is this week that we're talking about you sitting on your throne. And so I pray that uh, I would be an empty vessel for you this morning, uh, that it would be about your scripture that you would transform our hearts and our minds to help us understand that you are our king and that we are cherished and cher- cherished, created, created fearfully and wonderfully for you and for your glory. Thank you, God, for scripture, and I pray that you would speak through it this morning. Amen. So let's take a look at chapter four of Revelation. Let's remind ourselves to think slowly, think critically, and read methodically. So chapter 4, 1 through 6 is where I want to start. I wanted to kind of read that again because we're tackling a whole chapter, so we're going to break it up into a few different bits. Chapter 4 of Revelation says this. After this I looked, and we'll read through verse 6, I'm sorry. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold... A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. I think the first point that I'd like to make about this passage is that God sits on his throne. And in sitting on his throne, he deserves our complete worship and adoration. In reading passages like this, I'm quickly reminded and convicted that God sits on his throne right now as we sit in this room, as we speak, God sits on his throne. And looking at the words in this passage, just like rebuke or affirmations in scripture that we read in other places of the New Testament or the Old Testament, phrasing is important. And so don't let this scripture just be perceived to you as fluffy language that is there just to pique our interest. Just like anywhere else in Scripture, these words are divinely chosen. So John's experience introduces us to one of the primary images that dominate the rest of the book of Revelation, which is God's throne. The word throne appears 43 times from chapter 4 until the end of the book, and 14 times alone just in chapter 4. I counted twice. Some of you can, if you want to triple check me, that's fine. I was stuck in a camper for two weeks, so you really never know where my mind was. But don't overlook this imagery, that this is essential theology for us to understand as we perceive who God is throughout our daily lives, that God sits on his throne. Look again at the second verse of our passage this morning. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven, the one seated on the, and, and with one seated on the throne. When you think of God, do you know that he sits on his throne? When you pray to God, do you know that he sits on his throne? When you engage obstacles and challenges and difficulties, do you understand that God sits on his throne? This perspective of God sitting on his throne probably evokes maybe a wide variety of emotions for some of you. But I would ask you this, does this evoke any feelings of gratitude, adoration, or desire to serve your God and your king? Does this imagery even bring you back to a point of center, especially in the midst of this week that we're going through right now? As a a country is so quickly divided as Christians, are we quickly reminded that our God sits on his throne regardless of circumstance? Eugene Peterson has a quote that says this, If there is no center, there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness. So God... As, our, as we perceive God on his throne, he, per, he becomes our centering point. He becomes, when, as we have our efforts, as we have our beliefs, our values, our boundaries, as God sits on his throne, he becomes our centering point, and he always provides us perspective back to him. Now, another way to think about this is, and I'll throw you a cultural reference. Um, if I may date myself for a second, I don't mind the occasional Bob Dylan song, all right? Now, whether those of you in this room who like Bob Dylan or not like Bob Dylan, um, just give me a second, all right? He has a song that says, Gotta Serve Somebody. And in that song, one of his stanzas says this, You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might be living in a dome. You might own guns and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. 
Even Bob Dylan, ladies and gentlemen, knows and understands that our efforts on this earth can be traced back to serving someone or serving something. Worshiping someone or worshiping something. And so God has designed us to worship. God has designed us to see him on his throne. And in that seeing him on his throne, it leads us to worship and awe. But how often do we get that confused? Or how often do we quickly worship something on this earth or someone on this earth? So I would ask you this, just to kind of conclude my first point. Are you seeing God on his throne and is that leading you to worship and adoration and service? Do you see God sitting on his throne in all of his majesty and his splendor as your centering point, providing you guidance and boundaries and even rest? The second point I would like to make about these first few verses in chapter 4 is that our minds and our hearts need to be directed to God through a lens of his infinite creativity and his infinite splendor. That these attributes of him should also lead us to worship. Throughout my first few days of studying this passage, as I was talking to Rodney about it, the words imagination and worship just kind of continue to come to my mind over and over again. And in discussing this a passage with Rodney, I felt like it was, impa- it was impossible to avoid the fact that the scene described in these first two verses demand for us to recognize God not only on his throne, but that it also demands our attention and it also demands our imagination. And I use the word imagination as well as attention very seriously. The book of Revelation is very prophetic, yes, absolutely. But one of the literary beauties of Revelation is that it also challenges our ho-hum, suburbia perception of God, that he sits in the heavens. The heavens are a place that our own minds and imaginations cannot even contain his infinite beauty and creation. Not only are our minds blown by these passages of scripture, right? But we are also convicted and led to worship, at least I hope we are, that there is no other response that when we see God on his throne that we are led to worship. And we read passages like Revelation chapter 4 or Revelation chapter 1, and we're given this gift of Scripture that describes how our God is not restricted to our own creative or imaginative limitations. We read passages like this and we sit back and we're like, wow, that is amazing. And I hope that we all have had feelings like that. But that those specific Moments where we are understanding God's creation lead us to those aha moments. And maybe for you, sometimes having those aha moments, it's like when you're in Colorado and you're climbing a 14er and you come across an untouched mountain lake. Or for some of you in the room, that aha moment you still get is when you combine flour and water and yeast and you knead the dough together and you come back a few hours later and it's doubled in size. Or for some of you, it may be planting a seed in your garden and watching a tomato plant come to life. Or for some of you in this room, it may be watching a child learn to roll over or learn to speak or learn to read. We all have these aha moments. And those moments pull at our heartstrings. They expand our imagination. But most importantly, they are evidences of God's glory. No matter how hard we could try, no matter how John could try, we cannot produce these moments on our own that God defies our own imaginations and our own creative mindsets. And because of those things, God deserves our worship and God deserves to sit on his throne. In Revelation chapter 1, John described the Son of Man with eyes like fire, feet like bronze, and his face shining like the sun. 
I would say that was definitely a moment for John where his, his personal imagination was having an aha moment. In Revelation chapter 4, John goes back to describe the scene. Let's reread verses 3 through 6. It says this, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Again, I'm going to say something that is often said in the Gandhi household. We say this all the time, my wife and I, to one another. But words mean things. Even each of these jewels that are referenced have a meaning and a purpose for us this morning. Jasper and carnelian were jewels found on the chief priest's breastplate in the Old Testament representing the 12 tribes of Israel. I could also reference that the color of these gemstones could represent the purity of God or the redemption of sin by Christ's death on the cross. Or a rainbow of emerald signifying God's promise and faithfulness of life and creation. For those Avengers fans out there, I would make some type of joke about infinity stones right now, but I'm not going to distract us from that in this sense. Avengers aside, when you think about God sitting on his throne, do you picture the scene that is described in our own scripture this morning? Do we comprehend God's majesty when we think of God sitting on his throne? Do we also comprehend his creativity and his imagination? Does the scene that we set for ourselves as we approach the throne through prayer mirror what we're reading through in scripture this morning? Does that scene bring you to a place personally in your own heart and mind of a humble attitude of God that you are my king and your imagination and your designs are beyond me? Because it should. And our Heavenly Father does not sit also in a cold and cavernous place, but he also transcends our own imaginations and our own creativity and sits in a place that defies even our own expectations. Let's look at the next section of Scripture Verses 4, 6 through 8. And we'll kind of pick it up halfway through verse 6. It says, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The third point of the sermon this morning is that these creatures in the scripture that we're reading this morning reveal God's holiness while also showing us that these creatures tell of God's holiness. You may be reminded that this imagery is not the first time that we're introduced to creatures like this throughout the Bible. If I were to briefly define those two terms of cherubim or seraphim, it would be this. That the cherubim and seraphim are angelic beings who are guarding and attending to God, professing his holiness and professing of his sovereign lordship. So those quick references for you, uh, if you're writing this down, Isaiah chapter 6, 2 through 3, discusses the seraphim with having six wings while Ezekiel chapter 1 describes the cherubim in similar likeness as having the face of a man alongside the faces of a lion, an ox, and an eagle. 
The visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel and now John through the book of Revelation draw upon the imagery of these creatures. Remember that we're seeing this through someone else's eyes. And regardless, it's still important for us to understand what this imagery means. Empires throughout history have used powerful beasts to represent their strength and their might. So think about the symbolism that we even have in this country. Whether you look upon a state flag, or whether you're looking at our currency, or whether you're looking at our professional sports teams, what do you find? You'll find a plethora of lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. And when we see these powerful creatures, we should connect them to strength and might. At least, at least we should. No, not always like the cubs, not very strong mascot. Um, <clears throat> the point of John describing these beasts in detail to us is that these creatures, each of whom are strong and powerful in their own right, are worshiping the God on the throne. And more important than their identity or their appearance is that they are praising God ceaselessly day and night. I know I may sound a bit repetitive here, but words mean things. If you look at the verb use, even throughout this passage of scripture, so like for example, the verb use in beginning of verse five and then the phrase day and night in verse eight, it should give us the impression that this is not just something John saw once or was, uh, began to understand that this is just one thing happening at one time, but that this is a ritual repeating itself over and over again without rest or without interruption. Read verse eight again. It says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whatever else is going on in the throne room at any given time, what we should know and what is very clear is that worship is always taking place. Ladies and gentlemen, this unrelenting and unstoppable constant scene of worship is a picture of God's holiness. And God's holiness is something that we sinners cannot even dare to match. And I don't even know about you, but this type of holiness brings fear to me because I know in my heart that my version of holiness or my level of holiness is never going to reach that standard. My level of worship is never going to reach that standard. And in researching this passage, it was pointed out to me that in, other biblical, in, the, in another biblical reference related to those angelic beings, in Isaiah chapter 6, we read that the seraphim were literally covering their faces with their wings as they stood above the throne. God's presence is so powerful that even a hasty glance can be too much for them to bear. Look at another reference from the Old Testament. Remember Moses' interaction with the Lord in chapters 33 or 34 of Exodus. We read that Moses is having a conversation with the Lord, and he's practical. He's just like us. He wants more information. He wants more proof, and he wants more knowledge. And God being gracious to him, he agrees to pass by Moses. But he's like, first let me hide you in the cleft of a rock. And then all Moses was able to see was his back as he passed by. And then when Moses came down off of Mount Sinai, he had to veil his face to the Israelites because his face was shining like the sun. I think the challenge for me, and I wonder if the challenge for you in reading passages like this is also, so what does this mean for me? And here's what I want to say. That you are created in God's image. That you reflect God's creativity and his unimaginable intellect, just like those creatures. And you are designed to worship God just like those creatures. And we are designed to give God praise. 
But how quick are we to become distracted in giving God praise? These creatures are constantly saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So what if throughout this next week, you started your day with that phrase? What if during mealtime, you said that short but brief prayer? And I'm not even asking you to say it for 24 hours straight. I'm just asking and challenging you to how are you modeling ceaseless worship? Because God has designed you to do that. What would it mean for you and for your mind and for your heart to say those words of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come? Would that help adjust your mindset or your perspective for the specific day? Would that help you understand that you are a cherished child of God, of the Most High, of the God sitting on his throne, but that he sees you through Jesus and that he deeply loves you? Now, on that note of like, what does it mean for me or what should I do related to this text? I think we should read the final section of our scripture. Revelation chapter four, we'll read nine, 10, and 11. It says this, and whenever the living creatures, gives, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation chapter 4 has led us through a divine experience, and it concludes in my mind in a very practical and relevant way for us this morning. I want you to think about the juxtaposition of how chapter 4 is written. We start chapter 4 with seeing the throne room, for John being transcended into the Spirit, And we see God sitting on his throne and all the things that are surrounding the throne. And then chapter four concludes with the elders standing aside from the throne on the ground, casting their crowns before God and worshiping him. In a way, you could say that this concluding section of scripture is hearkening back to our status quo. And I hinted at this at the beginning of my message But the book of Revelation is yet again another way that God is challenging us and our status quo. So if I may practice what I preach, let's read slowly and think critically related to this passage of Scripture. Let's look at verse 9. It says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. Think slowly and think critically. Think about the elders' behavior and attitudes. The elders are seated around the most high God, right? Like they've done probably some awesome stuff for the kingdom. They probably know who God is. They probably know who they are in relation to God. And as I think about, they probably have a resume of faithfulness and trust in the Lord. Yet these elders have been put in the throne room for a purpose, not just for a pretty painting or a symmetrical layout, but God chose them to be there. They wouldn't be there without God's permission. And yet, regardless of their status, regardless of their place, regardless of even their own throne, the elders were not comfortable simply observing the creatures worshiping God on his throne. They didn't act as passive attendees to that worship experience. They didn't shrug their shoulders and say, ah, all those creatures got it today. I'm not going to worry about it. These elders wanted to continue to show God that he is worthy of their adoration and worthy of their worship. So they too joined in on the worship. 
They knew that God was deserving of their worship and deserving to cast their crowns aside, to step away from their throne and fall on the ground without hesitation or reluctance, exclaiming that God is to receive all glory and honor and power. Praising God that he has created all things and acknowledging that they would not even exist without God's will. Read verse 11. What are, what are the elders saying to God? How are they praising God? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, and by your will they existed and were created. The elders' perspective was not one of self-righteousness or indignant pride, but of humility and eagerness to throw away their own thrones and crowns and worship their God and their creator. So my last point is this. How are you showing God that he deserves all of your adoration and all of your worship? What crowns do you have in your life that you're holding on to, preventing you from telling God or showing God physically or telling God verbally that he is worthy of your complete adoration and worship? Maybe for you that crown is a badge of honor related to accomplishment or hard work on your own behalf. And your hard work has made you seek recognition and your hard work has prevented you from stepping away from your throne or casting down your crown. Maybe that crown for you is a badge of being a victim in a certain circumstance and you're not willing to lay that circumstance down at God's feet and be reminded of God and his infinite wisdom and design and love for you sent his own son Jesus to be an innocent sacrifice for you and that God deserves your worship. What thrones do you sit on in your life right now that prevent you from showing God that he is worthy to be worshipped? And thrones in this day and age can look a lot of different ways, guys and gals. Let's get really practical here. When we read and hear scriptures like Mark chapter 12, 29 through 30, I think it's a common Bible verse for those of us who may have grown up in the church or for those of you who have not, it's a conversation between Jesus and his disciples as far as what is the greatest commandment. And listen to Jesus and how he responds. He doesn't just come up with something on his own, but he references Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus says the most important is, and then he quotes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So which of those four categories does an excuse come so quickly for you? Is it your heart? Is it your soul? Is it your mind? Or is it your strength? And also think about this, that the idea of stepping off your personal throne and showing God that you believe he is worthy to be worshiped is not some new idea that Jesus came up with when he was talking and engaging with his disciples, but it has been our call and our command from the very beginning. And so I pray and I hope that when we come to understand the standard and expectation, the command upon our lives to worship God with our whole life, with our soul, with our mind, and our strength, that we realize that there is no throne to stand on. There's no person in this room that should not be face down on the floor, right next to your neighbor, and right next to those 24 elders, worshiping our God and our King. And worship is not just a Sunday gathering experience, but worship is a mindset and an attitude and a lifestyle. So how are you worshiping your King while you serve your friends and your family? How are you worshiping your king while you serve this church? How are you worshiping your king while you serve this community? 
How are you worshiping your king while you're being an employee? How do you worship your king by you filling the sentence? In conclusion this morning, I would challenge you in this way in order to grow in understanding that God sits on his throne, that he is king, that he deserves all of our adoration and all of our worship, that he is holy beyond all understanding and he deserves also our service. I would encourage you to take time each day this week to pray the prayers of the scripture that we learned this morning. To put them all together, it says this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you sit on your throne. Uh, you sit on your throne in the midst of a church plant uh, that, is, that is fighting to make disciples and to live as a family and to be on mission. And Lord, you fight for each of us through your son Jesus by, by divinely creating a plan to bring us into a relationship with you. And I thank you that Jesus, you put us all on the same level. Whether we are an elder in the throne room or we are a parent in this room, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus for us. And I pray that you would help us understand that you deserve our worship, that you deserve our adoration, that you deserve our service, that you are a gracious king and that you bring us into relationship with you because you deeply love us through your son, Jesus. I thank you for your scripture. I thank you for the book of Revelation. And I pray that it would transform our hearts and our minds this week. Amen. So this morning, we're going to transition to our time of communion. This morning, we have an opportunity as a family to break bread together and to remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. Now, it may look a little bit differently in the midst of COVID-19, but that doesn't relinquish the importance or the impact that this act has on our minds and our hearts. Luke 22, 19 through 20 says this, And he took bread and he gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. If you're a Christian this morning, communion is an intimate opportunity for you to reconvene with your Savior, to remind yourself of the cross, to confess your sins to him, to repent, and to receive grace from God sitting on his throne and be reminded that he had a divine plan to send his only son, Jesus, for you because he loves you, because you are fearfully and wonderfully created. So don't rush up here and hurry through this process. Let the moment unravel. Let the depth of the gospel, let the majesty of your creator, let the image of the throne room transcend you into a place, bring you to a place of honor and wonder and awe of, this, of who God is, that he would even invite you into his realm and remember your salvation story. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would encourage you to listen to that still, small voice beckoning you to give your life over to him. And then come to the table to remember that God and celebrate his holiness, his graciousness, his infinite creativity, his unattainable imagination, his wonder, and also his generosity in his son. Take time to take communion with your Savior today.